You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And welcome to the show with your host Carl Fitzgerald here on 3CR's beloved airwaves where we try and shine a light on the powers of monopoly and how that is the real issue uh, driving the inequality wedge whether it's monopolizing land monopolizing uh, the patents over our, our bodies our dna right through to water itself so the building blocks of life are up for sale they have been under the neoliberal agenda and uh, our organization's been around for some 126 years. Some say uh, back to the 1840s type era, there were pamphleteers uh, around Melbourne talking about the need to protect this commonwealth that, yes, was stolen from uh, uh, the indigenous custodians of uh, this beautiful land. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in some twisted way, there was a belief that if we uh, shared the value of the earth amongst all, then perhaps there'd be a chance of some sort of reconciliation, some sort of common sense approach to dealing with the land, to, to sharing uh, what could be seen as a birthright. So that's why the intro talks about earth rights and birthrights. And um, it's this power of monopoly to extract higher and higher prices out of society that is uh, ever so damaging upon the community and even upon uh, the efficiency outcomes neoliberals talk about. So that's why we like to really push the fact that once you get your head around this story of incorporating the earth the land into the core economic functions that we can actually outdo neoliberals on efficiency fronts. It's a big story, but uh, it's to the heart of this sort of neo-colonial environment we live in where anything and everything is being privatised. Now, a great way to see this is that back in the uh, early 1800s, uh, people like John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, David Ricardo had all been talking about this advantage of location, location and sharing that. And uh, their belief was that if we kept a lid on the rent of land, then we wouldn't need to tax labour for working or even business. We could give those people who were employing others who were taking risks a fair go. There was more than enough money to come out of the land, which in economics talk represents everything below us, everything above us, and also the natural monopolies. So, yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a challenge to, to get your head around it so that you can actually push this line of thinking and get people to recognise that the two economic policy priorities in terms of uh, this day and age are to keep an eye on inflation because high inflation rates undermine the savings of the wealthy, so that can't be undermined. 
and also uh, to ensure that uh, labour is not too restless with uh, large levels of unemployment. So we must ensure unemployment's low and within that, that um, uh, wage rates aren't increasing too much. And much of the debate in the globalisation type era is uh, about this battle between labour and capital. And that's just how the 0.01% want it. They want to have you distracted from understanding how all-encompassing this fact is that both labour and capital need to pay for somewhere to run their businesses. So... With that in mind, we are lucky here in Australia that there is some semblance of decency amongst the bureaucracy. It hasn't been totally stripped. In 2010, I think it was, the Henry Tax Review was released, which strongly pushed for the need to switch away from taxing mobile capital, which can easily be hidden in a tax haven, and to utilise land taxes more thoroughly. Mining taxes, uh, of course, were the one policy outcome the Labor government of the time sought, and that was uh, unfortunately defeated by the powers that be. A well-funded $20 million campaign with threats of marginal seats, campaigns with celebrities, uh, pretty well undermined this challenge against what we call rent-seekers. And rent seekers, are, it's akin to cronyism, but it's those who are trying to uh, sculpt public policy to ensure that uh, these natural profits by owning uh, a resource such as iron ore uh, won't be taxed in the public interest. They'll be left uh, untaxed, and uh, from that, great profits will flow to uh, those on the inside. So uh, over the last few weeks, it's been a pretty hectic start to the year, jumping straight back into the hot seat with a uh, uh, submission to the Department of Infrastructure on the Petroleum Resource Rent Tax. And so uh, that is uh, often in the news, thanks to the Tax Justice Network. And uh, one of the big concerns there are the elaborate depreciation rates that are allowed to uh, to big miners and what they do there is well what what was negotiated through that mining tax realm was to allow around about a 17 percent depreciation rate for these big projects and so uh, they're able to depreciate very heavily early on in the life of a project and from that uh, accumulate tax losses that can be brought forward into future taxing years, into future financial years and such. And so uh, at the moment, the oil and gas industry has some $170 billion worth of tax losses to offset any future profits. And from that, there's been a huge concern that it's going to be 20 years plus until we see any tax out of the uh, Gorgon uh, gas development up in uh, the northwest shelf of Western Australia. Absolutely phenomenal amounts of money there, and uh, it's just so frustrating that we have a tax system that allows corporate structures to basically 
incorporate uh, as many expenses as they can uh, early on so they can write down their profits and from that they barely pay a cent in tax. So there's a growing movement to switch away from things such as uh, the petroleum resource rent tax and move back to royalties. Good old royalties based on the dollar value of uh, the iron ore pulled out of the ground, for example, and taking it from there. We've also had, on the same day, there was a, another submission for the Department of Infrastructure, and that was for uh, value capture. The silver bullet, some critique uh, Malcolm Turnbull with, for public transport financing. And this is uh, something that we are very happy to see because it's essentially ensuring that the public receives some sort of feedback, some sort of return for the incredible uh, windfall gains that those who earn easy money from uh, rezoning, uh, who happen to own land near new infrastructure, really clean up as I've delivered many a time on the show the the sort of windfall gains that uh, Paul Little the former Essendon chairman made some I think it was something like 37 million dollars in 18 months by having his property uh, rezoned up to uh, 60 stories tall I think in Fisherman's Bend so uh, yeah very interesting to see that through the Department of Infrastructure, their discussion paper had lifted quite a lot from the two previous submissions we've uh, provided on uh, value capture in the last few years. And uh, the discussion has really stepped ahead so that uh, more and more, uh, well, there's a higher level of economic literacy uh, being displayed. And some of the questions that we're asking uh, certainly reflected that they were serious about ensuring that uh, these windfall gains uh, that could be coming up in the Arden Precinct here in North Melbourne uh, will be shared amongst the community. So that's certainly something we like to see. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Certainly, it's uh, our subscriber drive here on 3CR. Please show us your love and support the resistance. Support those who are bringing you the news you should be hearing on mainstream radio. I'd love to get a couple of subscribers. So give us a call, 949-8377, or uh, visit the website 3cr.org.au and uh, give uh, the Renegade Economists a, a vote of thanks because... Uh, 
uh, we do love coming into the station, but we also love seeing uh, uh, this aging uh, studio being updated and looked after here and there by our uh, our loving uh, team of uh, staff and volunteers. So, uh, yes, please do your bit to help 3CR. So uh, I'm now going to introduce a special guest of ours. We have, we're lucky to have uh, Jacob uh, Lucas Schwartz from... Uh, Schwartz Lucas. Schwartz Lucas. I knew I'd mix that up. <laughs> so uh, Jacob's here from New York. So Jacob, tell us a, a bit about where you work and uh, why this concept of earth sharing is, is uh, so enticing. Yeah, absolutely. So I work at the Robert Schockenbach Foundation, uh, they were a foundation that was started by one of uh, Henry George's adherents in the United States. He made a fair bit of money, not a lot, and uh, put it in a, a trust basically to fund the promulgation of George's ideas in the world. Yeah, so the way that I became interested in it, I'm 29 years old. Uh, I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, originally. Uh, my master's degree is in molecular biology, but the reason that I was interested in Henry George in particular was the result of a uh, basically a um, survey I did of economists and social entrepreneurs. It wasn't an official survey, but it was just for my own purposes. I emailed roughly a thousand, mostly economists, and, and asked, what is the biggest bang for my buck in terms of doing something marginal uh, in order to alleviate poverty and, you know, I guess generally suffering in the world. And um, I got a lot of really interesting responses back. You know, I was clear to say, you know, only, only three sentences. Um, I don't have a background in economics, but, you know, what, what can I do? And um, this was coming at a time where I was writing a grant to clean water in the Buriganga River in Bangladesh. And luckily, even as an undergraduate, I, um, you know, was actually able to write in the, in the grant that the results of the research would be open source, and they would be free for humanitarian use, because that was the point to clean uh, tannery effluent out of, out of the water so that, you know, people weren't getting sick. Uh, so, you know, it, it was out of that process that I started questioning sort of these more systemic uh, questions about, you know, you know, if you think back to uh, maybe Economics 101 or some philosophy or sociology courses you've had, and, they, you know, these philosophers ask the very basic question, what is property? And it was very clear to me that, you know, simply patenting a gene or some other, you know, just product of nature that you know, freely exists and which is excludable in the sense that somebody can just uh, say, okay, this section of your genetic code, I'm myriad genetics, I own it now in every way imaginable. That that just didn't sit uh, well with me at all. And, you know, as I looked into, okay, how do I have the biggest bang for my buck in terms of alleviating poverty? I realized that actually land was um, more fundamental than what I thought was the most fundamental thing to myself being that being genetics. Yeah, so basically, you know, I, I was doing some research as well in Cape Town in South Africa. Uh, and I was reading that book, uh, Progress and Poverty. This is the magnum opus from uh, Henry George. And 
I was with a San activist. San, the San are a people, if you've seen the movie, The Gods Must Be Crazy, they drop a Coke bottle out of the sky, and none of the San have ever seen a Coke bottle before, and so they're, they're confused by the whole, by the whole incident. Uh, they have a sort of a clicking um, language. But I, anyways, I was with this, uh, with this activist, and we were you know, driving in his truck, and I was reading Progress and Poverty, and I was looking out over these vast swaths of land that, you know, just growing up, I thought that people in poverty were in poverty because they were living in, you know, very desolate areas, you know, no, not enough water, food, famine, AIDS, the, these kind of issues. But what I saw were just vast swaths of land between Cape Town and Johannesburg that were very fertile. So I asked, you know, who, who owns these? And his reply was, you know, people in uh, Europe, the United States. I came to find out later that one of the main land grabbers in the region is uh, American Ivy League universities, so uh, Yale, Vanderbilt, Harvard, these places of higher learning that supposedly, you know, and, and I think their intention is to, to do what's good in the world, but, you know, who, like, as that's filtered through board structures and, and whatnot, it, it, it's obviously not doing a lot of good. And, you know, at the same time, while I saw these vast swaths of land that just weren't being used. I saw people grazing their cattle in the margin between the asphalt and the fence itself. And at that moment, I was reading about that classical economist, David Ricardo, and his theories about, you know, what's, what causes the sort of the general, if you can say that, at the general level of wages in a society? Like, why do, why do people um, become more employed and have more excess income and you know, what reduces that? And he said, basically, like, if there's a lot of good land that people can go to without paying rent, then landlords on better grades of land can't, can't charge them uh, a higher price. And so what they keep afterwards is their, is their wages. The law of rent. Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the, the defining elements of Georgism is showing how uh, the last remnants of freedom are being able to uh, to to make productive some of these marginal sites that that as you explain in between that basically the curbside uh, land between the fence and the road uh, that's somewhere where people can actually keep all of their wages and so that really helps define what the minimum wage could be is what people can do alternatively outside of the the traditional market system to uh, use their own two hands on the land to look after them and their family and that's one of the other core aspects that is overlooked when people um, uh, grapple with this issue of poverty is you know what do we really need a job or do we just need to access some land and uh, understand how to grow a few crops Right, yeah, people want what is, you know, the result of having a job, not the job itself. People don't like to, to toil and to wake up early in the morning and cut themselves shaving. What they want is, you know, the money that comes from it or the, or the wealth, and you know, through, through whatever means. And, and so uh, if, um, if there's really great land that these uh, sedentary farmers can, can go to without paying rent, then... You know, any kind of uh, lord of the manor 
is not going to be able to charge them more. And I don't mean to like throw feudalism into this as a like, oh, we live in a feudalist system. I, I happen to think we do, but I wouldn't um, just throw that on your listeners as if you know, they should you know, sort of accept that. Take the case of uh, Paraguay, where I believe that uh, 70% of the land is owned by like 1% of the population. It's like four major families. And uh, literally, if you are a tenant farmer on, on one of these big plots, you don't have a choice, right? You can go to one of the four families, but I would venture to say that they probably know each other and have agreements and are, you know, colluding to basically uh, keep wages low and rent high for for these workers. Now, if you think more abstractly about it, we don't have nearly as bad, as draconian of a economic system in, you know, I guess what you might call more developed, more, I guess, industrialized countries. But it's still a problem in the aggregate if you're concerned about things like, you know, just gross inequality. And since there's a lot more wealth in the United States and Australia and these countries, the inequality effects are actually worse. And, you know, if, if you've got lots of money, that means you can buy votes, you can, you can buy what, what you need. And so our, our democratic institutions are really undermined by the fact that, uh, you know, those that own really prime real estate in the center of cities, we're talking about your Donald Trumps, you know, of, of the world, uh, they can make enormous gains and, and, and use that to basically subvert democratic order. And one of the, you know, basically the perfect storm we've got, we've had quantitative easing, we've got record low interest rates, we've got banks uh, doing these uh, uh, carry trades, if you like, uh, borrowing cheap from America and then investing in different countries uh, where uh, their dollars are are low. And then some of the profits from that can easily be siphoned into uh, real estate investing and and basically this land grabbing game has uh, taken off because of record low interest rates on two fronts one is that they can't get a return in the banks so let's go and look in the at the land story as we talked uh, last week regarding uh, rental back mortgage security some of the returns there have just been off the Richter scale in America and as that's that trend spreads around the world it's it's going to get uh, even more and more pronounced this inequality and it's as if it's a uh, invisible noose around our necks this ever-increasing mortgage price so that uh, people are becoming locked out at the same time uh, what's left of the cheap land is getting snapped up uh, the latest uh, uh, land price data uh, from Core Logic today was talking about how some of the inland northwest New South Wales, like uh, you know, really um, dry, arid lands, have increased in the last six months by some forty odd percent, and just massive gains going on there in in this land game. And so, with that, more and more communities are forced to pedal that little bit harder to try and pay their rents, and uh, with that, they have to cut corners on environmental. Right type stuff uh you know there's all sorts of pressures that result from it and uh, in the end this growth economy is is based in a way upon the the opportunity costs of trying to keep up with these 22 percent 27 percent returns that some of these big real estate behemoths uh, are, are enjoying right and it's not just that okay they're enjoying and 
you know, we're no worse off, right? Because you could think to yourself, okay, well, I don't really mind some people doing extremely well as long as I'm not any worse off. But I like the word that you used, which was, um, you know, to pedal. And it, it really is like that. It's like, um, you know, it's like a bike that increases in speed the faster that you you can pedal. It's like a hamster wheel, right? And as you were talking about those arid lands in the Northwest, uh, the more that those become sort of either owned or just the value of them goes up and the price goes up, it doesn't leave an outlet for people who can't afford the high rents in cities or even suburbs. You know, in my country, uh, being from New Mexico, there there are a lot of people who who go out there to the sticks like that because they just they just can't make it in the cities and um, that's sort of their one last refuge for you know they have they have low wages but they can go out there and they can keep more of what they earn but yeah as as the as the value is just bidded up by really inefficient use of of land and the the incentives to speculate um, more and more of those people are sort of crushed and and that's the problem with extreme poverty basically yeah and so the the second point is that whilst uh, interest rates are so low it, it encourages people to invest in property well they can also borrow so cheaply as well to to buy that real estate if they need to but he, there's Donald Trump he's talking a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure as uh, many listeners will know on this show that is code for developer welfare uh, wherever you build the infrastructure, the land values will skyrocket. So, uh, yeah, that's unfortunately the game that they play. But uh, more and more uh, people around the world are rediscovering this old story of uh, land value taxation. So, uh, Jacob Schwartz Lucas from the Robert Schelkenbach Foundation, thanks so much for coming in here uh, to 3CR for this subscriber drive edition. Thanks for having me, Carl.